Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Episode 4, Life Upon the Wicked Stage. That song first appeared in Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern's Showboat, produced by Flo Ziegfeld in 1927. Based on the novel by Edna Ferber, the musical has had many revivals, but I've never actually seen it on stage. I did, however, see the movie with Marge Champion as Blossom Deary, singing the comical lyrics. Actually, the title for this piece is a bit of misnomer. I was never on stage. Well, once when I was in first grade, but it must have scared me so much I never did it again. No, my affiliation with theater is watching the performance from below, usually behind the director, but more of that later. The first time I saw a Broadway play was in 1956 at the Lyceum Theater near Times Square. It was a comedy written by Kyle Crichton called The Happiest Millionaire, starring Walter Pidgeon. I went with a group of junior high classmates. Why the teacher thought this was something we'd enjoy, I can't say. Maybe because it featured a prop alligator in a bathtub. I don't know what anyone else thought, but I thought it was a very silly play. I had already begun my first attempt at fiction. In my high self-esteemed status as an aspiring novelist, I decided that if this was theater, I'd take a pass, thank you. I had just turned 15. I never did finish that early novel. It, too, as I look back on it, was rather silly. But as I worked on it then, I realized that I needed better dialogue. So I began listening more and doing more writing exercises, although it was many years before I wrote my first play, 20 years to be exact. In 1975, my first full-length play was produced in Boston. It was about the Jesuits' efforts to proselytize the Hurons in North America in the 1600s. I was neither Jesuit nor Huron, but the topic interested me. The play was performed, ironically enough, in a church basement. My parents, living several states away, didn't attend, but sweetly sent me a congratulatory telegram on opening night, just as if it were playing in neon lights along the Great White Way. I was elated with the whole experience. I attended every rehearsal, every performance. I was on top of the world. The production scored very positive reviews, and at the end of the season, it was listed in a local arts newspaper as one of the 10 best plays for that year. I received a playwriting grant from the Artist Foundation of Massachusetts, and later, one from the Massachusetts Cultural Council. I was on my way. While I worked on my second full-length play, I had several successes with short plays in a play festival and on local television. I really began to think of myself as a playwright, not, of course, giving up the day job. Meanwhile, I had submitted a script to a director in New York who wanted to meet with me. I immediately bought a train ticket to Penn Station and arranged to meet the director at noon in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria, where I booked the cheapest room they had for overnight. Even at that, the room plus train fare strained my small budget. But as I waited in the lobby, I was exhilarated with the thought that I might have a professionally produced play in the Big Apple. I can't remember the name of the director anymore, and the meeting was over so quickly I can't recall our exact conversation but I thought it went well at the time. However, I never did hear back from the director, and I've never had a production on Broadway. With only a little money left in my wallet that day, I decided to trade dinner for a play. The one I most wanted to see was The Basic Training of Pavlo Hummel, 
written by David Rabe. Directed by Boston theater icon David Wheeler, it starred Al Pacino, already a renowned actor on stage and film in The Godfather 1 and 2. I was able to buy a discounted ticket at the box office at the last minute before the curtain rose and was fortunate that the seat was front and center. There was a full house. Hummel is in the tradition of complex anti-war plays, and the depiction of Pavlo, an American soldier in the Vietnam War, is in the long literary tradition of hapless anti-heroes. The language of the play is raw and perfectly authentic to its time and place. Pavlo, as a character, is not particularly smart, not very sympathetic, but still compelling in the dark portrayal by Pacino. As the play proceeded, the audience was transfixed by the relentlessness of David Rabe's script and the intensity of Pacino's performance, which was soon to win a Tony Award. Following the end of the play, The Inevitable and Empty Death of Pablo Hummel, there was a strained silence in the audience. Then, in unison, everyone rose to their feet clapping, myself included. Would that play have the same reception now? I don't know. What was relevant and shocking about Vietnam then has been eclipsed by real life since. But in 1977, I had never experienced a standing ovation before. And at that moment, in that space, at that performance, I saw the power of theater. A year later, I had my second full-length production, titled Rapture, in a larger venue. This time, the theater critic from the major Boston newspaper came. We all waited for his review. It wasn't the only review, with all the others being very positive. But this was the one everyone read. From beginning to end, he entirely missed the point of the play, which was about the descent into madness of a father whose young son has committed suicide. It may have been a little before its time, I grant you, but the reviewer seemed to take an uncommon, perverse glee in savaging the play. Some critics are like that. The headline of the review read, Rapture is a Rupture. <laughs> I, I laugh at it now, but unfortunately in that moment of my life, I was vulnerable to such malevolence. I stopped writing for several years. Even now, recalling that experience has sent me scurrying to the internet to make sure his review isn't archived anywhere. Thankfully not. However, that was a long time ago, and I've written a great deal since then, both plays and novels, and plays that have become novels and novels that have become film scripts, but that's another story. From the very first time I worked with a director and actors and everyone from stage managers to prop masters and sound and lighting engineers, I knew I adored the process of producing a play. Let Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland say, okay, kids, let's put on a show, and I'm there. Never, mind you, on stage. I'm perfectly happy to sit and watch the alchemy happen. While I've never had the privilege of an equity production, I am a deep admirer of the commitment of community theater. Although you may be as bored as I am with some dated old comedies, such as Same Time Next Year, in which the audience may well wonder what the two main characters see in each other, I do understand why these are so often performed. Boils down to the cost of mounting the play and the likelihood of attracting an audience. Will there be enough people to pay the price of admission in order to just break even? Luring audiences to see original or experimental work may depend on the sophistication and affluence of the community. Put on a familiar comedy, and at least the patrons know they're going to get a giggle for their time and money. At the community or even regional level, nearly everyone involved in a production, unless retired, 
is otherwise employed. On their off time, actors spend hours upon hours memorizing lines, rehearsing nights and weekends, and performing most often without pay. Compensation for members of the theater company is sometimes no more than a couple of complimentary tickets to give to family or friends, and you pray they'll show up. Playing to an empty house is disheartening. I experienced the dedication of the entire theater company in every play I've ever had produced. As a playwright, once a play goes up, you are a little more than a spectator. Many times I'd watch with horror when actors forgot their lines, or worse, jumped scenes. But I'd marvel at the ability of the rest of the cast to cover up the mistakes. In one of my plays, the lead actress never did get the lines right or in proper order throughout the entire run. Nonetheless, the play won an American Regional Theater Award, ARTA, for the best script that year. I'm not sure exactly what that says about the script, but it certainly credits the actors for great improv. That play was based on Hamlet, if Hamlet were a cantankerous old spinster in Vermont in the 1930s. Many scholars attribute the first murder mystery to Edgar Allan Poe, but Shakespeare predated him by a couple of centuries. Hamlet, to me, is a classic murder mystery. As it happens, my play never went further than a local production. I later turned it into a novel called Winterkill, which I've just adapted to a film script of the same name. I haven't been very successful with film scripts, having had several optioned or near Hollywood production only to fall through, but I guess that's a pretty common experience with screenwriters. In writing a play, the very best one can hope for is a standing ovation. If it happens even once in your lifetime, you may count yourself fulfilled. It happened once for me. Well, not exactly for me. No one shouted, author, author. But once an entire audience stood up and applauded the young woman who acted in a short play of mine. The play called Huma's Loom was staged in a series of different venues, including Boston Theater Marathon. But it was the first performance in a small local theater that made it memorable for me. The play was written as a companion piece to Penelope's Tapestry, the story I related in episode two, and was based on an actual event with a slight modification here to conceal the identity of any individuals. I'm going to read it to you, but you'll have to grant me the fiction that you're hearing a young Middle Eastern woman. Huma's Loom Lights up As the Islamic call to prayer is heard in the background, Huma sits at her loom on a stone weaving a rug. There is a pile of prayer rugs in the corner. When there is silence, she speaks with the restraint of one who has suffered. It is the beginning of winter, and I have prepared for the cold. I have rugs on the walls and floor, and have woven heavy blankets to keep my boys warm. I am Huma, daughter of Hasir the teacher, mother of Mustafa and Arim. My two boys are asleep now. I put them to bed early, because their stomachs growl for food, and there is no more food today. Tomorrow, Salah will come, and I will give them rice and play games with them, and perhaps they will not be so hungry tomorrow. They are very little, but they have no friends. No one will play with them but me. Arim is only three, but Mustafa is of age to go to school. He is not allowed, but he does not know why. Mustafa, I am teaching. He will know how to read and how to write, because I know how to read and how to write. My father taught me. That was my fate. When ISIS came into our village and took over everything in our lives, I was 12 years old. 
I was already reading the Quran for many years, and my piety was known in our neighborhood. I did not yet wear the burqa, so my face was exposed. I was considered a handsome young woman. An ISIS fighter, I will not pronounce his name in the presence of Allah, selected me to marry. Of course I did not want it. My father was much opposed. My father was a man of the book, a man of conscience. He said, no, without my father's consent, no man could take me. But the ISIS persisted. What a secret pleasure to have a wife who could read the Quran to him, a pretty wife, although only he would see my face after I put on the burqa, and only he would hear the words I read from the book. He came every day to obtain my father's consent, and every day my father said no. He became infuriated. He arranged to have my father arrested. Still, my father said no. So they smashed my father's fingers in the door, one by one, and committed tortures upon him that I cannot even imagine. After a time, they finally broke him body and spirit. The ISIS fighter took me in marriage, and my father died. He is buried in that cemetery over there. I can see his grave from my cave. Mustafa was born right away, and he was a perfect child, so happy and loving. The ISIS husband approved. It was a healthy son. I shall never tell Mustafa he was the son of rape, or that I could not bear the touch of the ISIS husband. When he came to me each night, I lay silent and prayed to die. But when Mustafa was born, I prayed to live, so that he would not be raised by the ISIS husband. My prayers were answered and the Isis fighter did not give me another child for three more years. When Arim was born, he was another joy. My blessed children are Allah's gift. All else I endured. Then the Americans came, and the Isis fighter left. I did not know where he went. I did not know if he fought the Americans. I did not know if he was dead. I did not care. All that mattered was that I was free of him. But once the Isis army had left the city, the other women of the street drove me out of my house. They cursed me for having an ISIS husband and for having sons of an ISIS fighter. I told them it was not my doing. My father did not wish it. I did not choose my fate. But they said they were punishing me for my evil deeds. They threw rocks at me and the children and drove us out. My friend Salah has tried to talk to the others in a quiet way to let us come home again but their hearts are stone. So be it. Here in this place near the cemetery, they do not bother us. It was only a little cave in the mountainside, but I have built out the walls with mud to make a place to sit and weave. Our water comes from the river. If it were not for Salah and her husband Daoud, we would have nothing. They gave me some of their sheep to graze in the cemetery. I gather the wool to spin and dye it bright colors from the plants and flowers that grow on the graves. Salah has given me a spinning wheel and a loom from her own house with the help of her husband. May Allah bless him for his charity. I weave prayer rugs that Salah takes to the market to sell, for no one would buy from me. I share the proceeds with her, for she is taking a great risk. She buys us rice and sometimes bread, and if we do well, she may bring some vegetables and maybe a little meat. She would be much offended, I think, if I told her, I know she seldom takes her share. Salah comes once a week to collect the rugs from market. She tells me they have become very popular. The designs are appealing, and the lettering is said to be very beautiful. 
No one knows that a woman who can read and write has woven these rugs. Last week was a good week. There was even enough for a little lamb, and she made some sweets for the boys. I am grateful. Thanks to her, we survive. My greatest fear is for my children. I will give them what I can, but what will happen when they are older? Will they be forever shunned? And will they, as men, come to hate their mother for having brought such a fate upon them and upon herself? Will they curse and beat me, turn against me, and reject me? How else will they be accepted unless they renounce their sinful mother? Salah has offered for her and Daoud to take my children. I ask why Daoud would raise Isis' sons. After so many girls, she answers, we have given up on sons. Salah and Daoud would take Mustafa and Arim to their house and raise them as their own. They would have a bed to sleep in, food on the table, and an education, and no one would turn away from them. Would you want this, Uma? she asks. To live without my children? For your children to live, she says. I have told her I must think on it more and pray for guidance. What she proposes, although kindness itself is impossible, for a mother to give up her sons is a far worse disgrace than what they will face with me. There is only one answer. It is good that Salam may not see into my burqa. I do not reveal myself even to her, for then she would know that I have stopped eating the food she brings. I feel myself dwindling. Soon I will be beyond the loom. When it becomes cold and I grow weaker, I will lie down smiling, and my sons will go to live with Salah and Daoud without disgrace. That beautiful lettering on my rugs, for the few who can read, may appear incomplete at the corners, or they may believe that no human work should strive to be perfect. But what seems a flaw is not, for on each rug I have lettered a part of my story. Only if one were to gather up all the rugs from all the houses in all the streets of the city and read the corners of each would anyone know what is being told about Huma and her sons. But that will never happen, and no one will ever know except Allah. The End I hope you'll come back next month for Episode 5, called The Pedicure. It's a humorous short story about women and aging. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.